It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, December 5th. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. Oil companies pumped millions of dollars into the state's midterm elections, hoping to see oil-friendly candidates win big. How'd their investments turn out? The California Report fills us in. Then, Attorney General Merrick Garland is doubling down on the Justice Department's commitment to civil rights cases for Native Americans. But some don't think the DOJ is going far enough. More ahead on National Native News. Then, we'll take a quick look at your local news and weather. This is the California Report. I'm Adi Bolaños in San Francisco. Oil companies spent big in California's election this year, and for good reason. Governor Gavin Newsom is calling on lawmakers to take action to drive down gas prices in a state where drivers pay far more than anywhere else. Here he is at KQED in October. They're ripping you off. They're ripping every one of us off. And we're going after these companies. KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos looks at how Newsom's proposal could fare with the new class of lawmakers being sworn in today and the official start to the state's legislative special session. Oil companies pumped more than $8 million into state legislative races this cycle, placing their bets to elect the most oil-friendly candidates. Much of that money was used not to back more traditionally sympathetic Republicans, but to prop up Democrats they see as more moderate and more open to industry concerns than their progressive Democratic opponents. Doug Morrow does opposition research on behalf of progressive Democrats. He says oil companies have become more and more active in Democratic politics since the state passed its first landmark climate change law in 2006. So as California has become a bluer and bluer state and there are more and more Dem versus Dem general races, the business community and specifically the oil industry has focused more and more on electing moderate Democrats. Whether their multi-million dollar bet will pay off this year remains to be seen. Take the biggest spender this cycle, an independent committee funded by Valero, Chevron, Marathon Petroleum and Phillips 66. That group alone pumped $5 million directly into eight races this fall. Just two of their candidates lost. That's not a bad batting average, but even when their candidates win, there's no guarantee they'll do oil's bidding in the state capitol. Take the costliest race of this cycle, a Senate contest in Sacramento between two Democrats, where the oil group poured $1.6 million into backing Angelique Ashby, who ultimately won. Ashby, however, had pledged not to take fossil fuel money and denounced the independent spending on her behalf. She also promised to work with Newsom on his proposal to impose a penalty on windfall oil profits and return that money to consumers. Mike Young is political and organizing director at California Environmental Voters, which supported Ashby's opponent, Dave Jones. Young says Ashby's comments show the politics have shifted in California around oil. Their money has become toxic, as it should be, and even their candidates are trying to be very careful about what they say or what they do and how connected they are to it. Oil companies did not respond to repeated requests for comment about their campaign spending, but at a California Energy Commission hearing last week examining high gas prices, Western States Petroleum Association CEO Catherine Reese Boyd acknowledged the enormous power the legislature and other state leaders have over the industry. Through public policy, the governor, the legislators, the regulatory agencies 
have the most opportunity to make changes that can positively impact Californians. No surprise, she opposes Newsom's proposal, saying it will only hurt consumers. It remains to be seen whether or not lawmakers buy that argument. For The California Report, I'm Marisa Lagos. The L.A. City Council voted unanimously on Friday to phase out oil drilling in the city and ban new oil wells over the next 20 years. The vote comes after decades of complaints from city residents about the effects of pollution from drilling. The move is opposed by leaders in the oil industry who claim it will cost the city money and make Los Angeles more reliant on foreign oil. A ban to phase out oil drilling has already passed in Culver City and unincorporated parts of L.A. County. As we've been reporting on the California report, the state is seeing a surge in new COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations. The latest numbers from the California Department of Public Health show an increase in both new daily cases and hospital admissions, both up more than 100 percent from a month ago. But there is some good news. California's top health official says more people are picking up the pace when it comes to getting the updated COVID booster. Cap Radio's Kate Wolf has more. Even as COVID rates and hospitalizations increase, less than a fifth of the state's population has received the shot. Now the rate is picking up speed. That's according to Dr. Mark Galley, Secretary of Health and Human Services. Californians are starting to get the message. They're starting to see the real reality of the threat. They're talking to their friends in healthcare. They're talking to the family member who missed three days of work or school because they're sick. And they're saying, wow, this is really kicking my butt. And we can avoid that. As of the state's last update, a little over 18 percent of Californians have received the shot. However, Galley says the state needs to work harder to close the gap between rich and poor communities. He said poor residents are 22 percent less likely to have had a booster shot than those on the other side of the spectrum. That's despite investment in trusted messengers in lower income areas. If we deluded ourselves that we could wake up in the throes of a global pandemic and catch up on issues like equity and disadvantage and distrust of a healthcare delivery system, we've been dissuaded against that idea. Last year, the state committed to give $300 million annually to local health departments. Money, Galley said, will improve outreach and communication. For the California Report, I'm Kate Wolf in Sacramento. Moderate weather and well-timed rainstorms helped ensure a mild 2022 fire season in California. But CalMatters environment reporter Julie Cart says even in December, caution is still key with fire. There's not a fire official in California that will tell you that it's safe to do anything with fire in December. There's historically large and deadly fires have occurred in December, run off into January, very stubborn and difficult. And if you think about the topography and geography of California, the northern part of the state goes kind of quiet, uh, reliably uh, in the winter. And then in the south, we have our Santa Ana winds. Those wind-driven fires are some of the worst in California history. So there really isn't a moment of rest and peace for firefighters here. That's CalMatters' Julie Cart. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford HealthCare, alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now is the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. And... 
Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, which bets early on exceptional people making the world better, on the web at SchmidtFutures.com. And that's the California Report for Monday, December 5th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. On March 21st of this year, a murder took place at the Grand Gateway Hotel in Rapid City, South Dakota. The hotel owners responded with a tweet saying Native Americans were no longer allowed at their hotel and bar. This fall, the Department of Justice filed a lawsuit against the hotel for violating the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But certain groups claim this racist act is just the tip of the iceberg and more needs to be done to expand the scope of the DOJ's investigation. National Native News has the details coming up. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland is reiterating the Justice Department's commitment to civil rights cases for Native Americans. He spoke at the White House Tribal Nation Summit last week in Washington, D.C. Garland pointed to the case announced earlier this year involving the Grand Gateway Hotel in Rapid City. As South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger reports, one group wants the DOJ to do more. The Justice Department announced its lawsuit against the hotel in October. That came several months after the owner posted on social media that Native Americans were no longer allowed at their hotel and bar. Days after, some Natives were allegedly denied service. Attorney General Garland says protecting the civil rights of all individuals was a founding purpose of the department. It remains an urgent priority. For example, earlier this fall, the department filed a lawsuit against the owners and operators of a hotel and bar in South Dakota, for violating the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by discriminating against Native American customers. The Justice Department is working hard to make good on our commitment to improve the well-being of tribal communities. The president of a group that initially brought the lawsuit says he appreciates the DOJ looking into racist activity in Rapid City. However, Indian Collective's Nick Tilson says the department is not willing to look into deeper systemic racism. We ask them to expand the scope of their investigation because we understand the behaviors of the Grand Gateway Hotel are a byproduct of a culture of systematic racism here in the community. Taking down Grand Gateway or holding them accountable is not going to be the end all for us. Tilson also says Indian Collective and others are asking the DOJ to pardon the country's longest-serving indigenous political prisoner, Leonard Peltier. For National Native News, I'm Lee Strubinger in Rapid City. The public comment period ends Monday, December 5th on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's draft of its Alaska Native Relations Policy. Crystal Cheesecook Leonetti is the agency's Alaska Native Affairs Specialist. So while the Native American policy applies everywhere, including Alaska, We needed to have these unique considerations. The draft policy recognizes the impacts of climate change on Alaska's landscape. It also mentions the inclusion of indigenous traditional knowledge and co-management efforts. The policy will also require Alaska Native Relations training and education for Fish and Wildlife Service employees. That is designed to illuminate the current status of the nutritional and spiritual and cultural connection to living a subsistence way of life, that it is also um, really important for Alaska Native people to continue that way of life for reasons beyond nutrition. 
The relationship between the agency and Alaska Native people has not always been amicable. Leonetti says improving those relationships is central to developing the policy. Since 2016, she's worked alongside a 12-member team of representatives from every region of Alaska. We wanted to make sure every word and every sentence was agreed upon by the entire group. And if it wasn't, we, we talked about it until we could agree on the language that made sense for everybody. Leonetti expects it will be signed and included in the agency's national manual sometime in 2023. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. The Indian Arts and Crafts Board promotes Indian artists of federally recognized tribes through its online source directory. Information on this no-charge opportunity available at doi.gov slash IACB, who support this program. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Let's take a look at your local news. Tahoe National Forest law enforcement say a Nevada City resident was found guilty of driving a motorized vehicle off designated routes along Greenhorn Creek. The terrain is home to the foothill yellow-legged frog, a California endangered species. The individual was educated and ticketed on site, receiving additional fines later in court. Quote, It is the responsibility of the motor vehicle user to tread lightly and know where they are allowed to go on national forest lands. Driving off designated routes causes the degradation of resources and could potentially harm wildlife, as in this case. Tahoe National Forest takes irresponsible motor vehicle use on public land seriously, from the lens of both public safety and the protection of habitat, says Tahoe National Forest Patrol Captain Gerald Parker. Historically, the area of Greenhorn Creek was heavily visited by motor vehicle users and other recreationists. Tahoe National Forest has since ramped up patrol of the area. Turning our attention to your local weather forecast from the National Weather Service. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, showers likely and thunderstorms possible before 3 a.m., mostly cloudy with a low around 33. Tuesday, small chance of showers before 7 a.m. with patchy frost between 9 and 10 a.m., otherwise cloudy with a high near 48. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, scattered snow showers before 10 p.m., mostly cloudy with a low around 16. New snow accumulations of 1 to 2 inches possible. Tuesday, mostly sunny with a high near 34. In Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, showers likely mainly after 2 a.m. with a low around 44. Tuesday, a 30% chance of showers mainly before 8 a.m. Cloudy through mid-morning, then gradually clearing with a high near 55. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR.
Born in Hogshooter, Oklahoma, Che Greenwood made his way out west, settling in Nevada City in 1986. He's donned multiple hats over the years as stage manager, promoter, DJ, playing an integral role in the fabric of KVMR. His love of live music found its way into his own KVMR show, Folksay, where guests made frequent appearances and performed often. Che passed away early Friday morning. KVMR's Felton Pruitt reminisces with Kelly Fleming on a life well lived. Felton Pruitt here, talking with Kelly Fleming. We're sitting at Yobobo's on a drizzly Monday afternoon, and we're going to talk about our dear friend and brother, Che Greenwood, who passed away on Friday. I believe it was Friday in the wee hours, yeah. Che, of course, was a, a DJ on KVMR for I'm not sure how long, over 20 years? Oh, yes, well over 20 years, yeah. one of the longest ones left. Did folk say on Wednesday mornings from uh, 10 to noon? That's right, yeah. So here we are. We're uh, we're missing Che already. He <laughs> left big shoes to fill. He used to manage the KVMR Celtic Festival, the, also the Kate Wolf Festival, and many other festivals. That's pretty much where I knew you guys as a team. You guys were the stage managers at Kate Wolf and Celtic and many other things. Sure. Well, I met Che, actually. This is a newer building now, but in the same space we're sitting in now. Your Bobos. The, the, the herb shop yeah. before that. meant back in 85, Che and I were both here working at the herb shop. And we started hosting concerts here in the herb shop. And we had uh, Utah Phillips had just moved to town, so we had him. We had uh, Nina Gerber, Sally Van Meter, um, Sarah Elizabeth Campbell, Ramblin' Jack, you know. All playing at the herb shop? Yeah, all playing at the herb shop. We'd move clothing racks out of the way. We'd chair it out to about 60 chairs, sometimes have two shows a night. And the tickets were like five bucks. Wow. You know, and it was great. And... uh, yeah, so that's how we, we started doing music. This is bef- preceding Nightlife, so it was kind of some of the uh, music of that type happening. And then, of course, KVMR uh, took it and ran with it, you know, and yeah. uh, created Nightlife, and, and the rest is history. Well, Che was certainly uh, tied into the music community. Of course, uh, many people know he was married to Kate Wolf for a brief second. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in, I guess, was it the early 70s or... Yeah. Yeah. And part of that crew, yeah, he had Che had many lives in many places. Well, Che was nice enough to do an interview with me years ago for a Kate Wolf special and he told me about all the songs she wrote for him about oh, yeah. him. You yeah. know, like you're not standing like you used to. Oh yeah. Tequila and, and Tequila me. and me. She called him up and he and she, and she goes, "Do you have a cold?" and he said, "No, I got tequila." <laughs> and the next day she presented him with that song. Yeah. So she wrote many songs about him. About his his grandfather too. Um, yes, a lot of people thought she wrote that for her grandfather because she uses the word grandfather in it. Um, Eyes of a painter. Yeah. And uh, she was back in Oklahoma with Che, and she said, "Les, what should I look for?" And he goes, "Well, Katie, look at the light." <laughs> so she just went with that. Kate didn't take much to. She just went with stuff. I remember he he had Chip Taylor in the studio once and did one of the best interviews I ever I love that interview. That was so cool. I mean, Chip like, Taylor was a really cool dude. Yeah. So Che, um, he passed away. I guess it was cancer. Yes, him? yes. He'd been diagnosed last, well, about a year ago. And then 
finally in the spring he opted to move back to North Carolina to his daughter Rachel where Rachel had moved a few, couple years previously and uh, doing very well there and uh, so he went there and I went back and visited him in September and we hung out for a week and played some music and had a lot of serious talks and a lot of not so serious talks you know? anything good come out of the serious talks um, just a lot of existential stuff, you know, and, every, and and we would have these talks every day, and some, you know, it was just, uh, sometimes it was really heavy, and other times it was just a couple of yahoos, you know. Well, he was a very spiritual man, very, very kind and, and gentle man from what I knew of him. Yep, yeah, he had his moments. He could, uh, he was a good old boy from Oklahoma, uh-huh. and uh, grew up. He was born in the town of Hogshooter, which um, was nothing but a school, a few houses, and his father's store, which was a central place for people to meet. And uh, they spent a lot of time in the saddle on horseback, and they subsistence, subsistence hunted for their meat. And um, one of the great stories, when the movie Shane came out, they all rode over to Pahuska, where Ben Johnson, the actor, was from, and his father has a rodeo named after his father, and they watch Shane on horseback at the drive-in. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, it was a different way to grow up, and we talked a lot about that, how lucky he was to, uh, you know, experience so many things that have gone out of the world. Yeah. You know? So do you know about any memorials for Che Greenwood here in um, Nevada City coming up? Che and I talked about this, too. He really wants one here, and I, and we'll have one. I'm going to enlist the help of John Tabor. <laughs> he might not know it yet. Um, and, and Rachel, who, uh, and I think uh, in probably late spring, early summer, when we can all meet outside somewhere and somewhere where we can have a sound system and people can play music and do it, you know. He enjoyed so much. So we'll keep people to, uh, posted. Right now, nothing firm yet, but there'll be plenty of time for people to figure that out and try to get up here and hang out. We've been talking with Kelly Fleming. We will uh, remember our brother forever in music and in our hearts. Thanks, Felton. Appreciate it. That's our newscast for this Monday, December 5th. Visit us online at kvmr.org and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. You're used to hearing our voices, and now it's our turn to hear yours. KVMR's newscast is searching for commentary from members of our community. Commentary should be three minutes of audio, approximately 300 to 500 words, and should be used as a place to express your thoughts or feelings on a subject of your choosing. If you're interested in speaking your mind in a thought-provoking, individualistic space, email your script for a proposed commentary to news at kvmr.org. But first, please be sure to review our commentary guidelines at www.kvmr.org slash commentary guidelines. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Join us Tuesday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.